here we are at Pod and Market. Eager readers of the podcast website and the show notes that accompany each episode of the pod might remember some links that were attached to our first episode about MX3 and development in the Ironbound. These links led to two YouTube videos, with each of those videos showing a graphical representation of what the proposed buildings would look like in the Ironbound. I initially found these links on the Newark subreddit. I was impressed by how succinctly and how jarringly those videos showed the change that would happen to the skyline and the view from the Ironbound if the tall buildings were built. That's when I saw the name Miles Zhang for the first time. I began to do some digging around through my networks to find out who this Miles was and what his relationship to Newark was. After a month or two of asking around, one of my friends and a listener to this podcast told me to check out the new exhibit in the Haynes building and that he would be there talking about it. I went and I was astounded. I was astounded by this young architectural student, still in college at the time, who is one of the driving forces and designers of the exhibit in one of the most prominent public spaces in the city. In his own words, Miles is a Newark native. From the age he could first speak, he drew the urban architecture around him. His past work documented the impact of urban renewal on Newark's built environment. His current project describes Newark's history of incarceration and possible interpretive reuses for the old Essex County Jail, one of the city's oldest buildings and abandoned since 1971. Miles is currently studying for a master's degree in architecture and urban studies. His thesis examines the darker history of buildings as tools for social coercion and surveillance. So we have Miles here to talk about what's going on at Old Essex County Jail and this uh, project. And I actually want to just throw it over to Miles to, you know, explain what this exhibit is about and what's going on there. Sure. So this exhibit began in uh, spring of uh, 2018 with the studio at Columbia University at their graduate school where a couple of students there and the teachers decided as a kind of a, an exercise course to examine the history of this jail and to look at different ways to creatively reuse the structure uh, to interpret Newark's history. And uh, after the studio closed, uh, my parents, my father, decided that all this work from the Columbia students examining the history, the architecture, the culture was important to Newark and should be shared with a larger audience beyond the closed atmosphere of a studio. And so my father and I began this process, creative process, of trying to adapt this academic content and this architecture content into a public-facing exhibit that could hopefully, I hope, become a launchpad for future preservation efforts. Okay, so let's let's pull back a little bit and let's talk about what is the old mm-hmm. Essex County Jail. Why do we even call it the old Essex County Jail? So when New York was incorporated in the city as 1836, one of the first acts of the city government was to create a jail and a county courthouse almost kind of illustrating, I think, the importance of incarceration to the founding of, of this city. And that jail was built by a f- pretty famous architect in the 1837 called John Haviland, who also built Eastern State in Philadelphia. And that jail was in use pretty constantly from 1837 to 1971, when a new jail, the new Essex County Jail, was built behind City Hall. And behind the, cor- the count of re- County Hall of Records. Right, that's the one that's on, um, not MLK, but right up, th- that's the new... Essex County Jail, right? It's up behind um, the Essex County Courthouse, which you can see if you're driving up Market, yes, right? It's with a very tall, kind of almost fascist-looking structure with these little narrow slit windows. One might say fascist. Uh, I think uh, an architecture student would say what brutalist, right? Brutalist. <laughs> <laughs> I think brutalist is the more correct term I should use. Yeah, the, let's talk about the intersection of fascism and brutalism, right? Um, but um, so that's the new site of the jail, right? And yes. you said 1971 is that when that opened, or yes. at least when it moved away yes. from the old site. Where is the old site of the jail? The old site of the jail is uh, right by the Lock Street subway station uh, as you ride the New York City subway. 
and it's about a block from NJIT, uh, way near Bleaker, near the intersection of uh, of uh, Central Avenue and uh, Bleecker, between those yeah. two streets. So to help orient people, I think it's uh, Warren Street Station, yeah. right? If yeah, you get Warren off right Street. there, um, so if you take the city light rail up, to, uh, you know, three stops from Penn Station, and um, there's NJIT's new brand, brand new yeah. um, athletic facility, and you're saying it's like right across, right across the from street the- from there. There's a parking lot, and behind the parking lot, there's a jail. I think one aspect of this jail is that it's, I think, probably harder to preserve on account of its location. You you go down uh, streets like MLK, and you see the beautiful Kruger Mansion. It's giant. It's large. It looks abandoned. It looks like oh, we need to do something about this. But I think what makes this old jail different, although even though it's historic, is that from the street, it's not really not visible. It's not on a very visible public corridor. And so it doesn't have that same sense of there being something there that is visible. Yeah, it's really hidden. I, just to bring my own personal mm-hmm. experience, my my dad has this like weird route to get home. I grew up in the North Ward, and when he drives up, he tends to um, go down lock and then turn that way. And I used to see this old abandoned building, which is really ensconced in that area, not knowing it was a jail. I thought it was an old factory or something. Yeah. Um, but it was an actual yeah. jail, right? And um, could you explain, I don't know how much you know about the history, but what, what, what makes a jail a jail as opposed to like a prison? Yeah, so there's a slight difference here that when, even still, still today, when someone is first arrested, they are charged with a crime. And during the entire process of the trial, they spend most of the time or all that time in the jail. Like Rikers Island is a jail. It's, for longer term sentences, you're sent to a prison. That's after you've fully been convicted. And so generally for shorter-term sentences in the 1800s, you would spend that at the jail, but for really like longer terms, for more serious crimes, you would be sent to the prison upstate. Mm -hmm. And um, any notable um, events at the jail historically or any maybe famous residents that were incarcerated Um, in there? Or at least, it's not technically incarceration, but they were held there uh, awaiting trial. Uh, Not to my knowledge, not too many uh, people. I think most of the people incarcerated there historically were, you know, generally poor people, generally people for small crimes like misdemeanors or like loitering or traffic violations, those kinds of things. It's one, I think one of the most common questions that we get about the jail is how many famous people were there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the things that probably makes it more difficult that you go to Eastern State or um, Alcatraz in California and it's always like Al Capo is here, all these great people were here at the jail is I think more for, doesn't have that narrative. Um, but it was in use in 67. Yes, it was in use in 67 for two weeks. In 1967, uh, many of the people arrested there, including uh, the uh, mayor's father, right. spent a few a few weeks there. Uh, at that time, the jail was really overcrowded, and they pushed a lot of those extra people into different di- different uh, off-site confinement. Right. If you go to the – to reiterate, there's an exhibit in the Haynes Building, um, and it's going to be up – do we know how long it's going to be? Until uh, at least September 27th. Okay. So, yeah, uh, please go there um, as soon as you can if you're going to go to Whole Foods or Cool Vines. Like, it's definitely worth just walking around. But you can see a prominent picture of Amiri Baraka yeah. uh, on there, and it actually has that history of, of how the jail was used mm-hmm. in 67. Um but let's talk about the current state of that building. What What is it like in there? Can you even go there right now? Uh, it's, I think one of those things about the Essex County Jail, it's, it's, of course, you aren't really supposed to go there, but there's no security fencing around the edge. There's a lot of holes, and a lot of people do go inside of it. If you just Google old Essex County Jail, there are a lot of images of the structure as it now appears. It's been abandoned since 1971, so going on nearly 50 years. So it looks like it's abandoned, been abandoned for 50 years, many holes in the roof, a lot of decay, a lot of trees growing out of the old old, old cell blocks, a lot of rust. Um, I think it's a difficult place to be in. It's 
physically quite oppressive because of its history. And it's also, I think, kind of one of those typically scary-looking places to be inside because you visit it and you think of all the people who might have been there, all the stories who happened there, all the people there who were executed, uh, you know, for during the Civil War. Oh, wait, wait look, can we talk about that? I didn't know that there were people executed. Pe- people the- were executed at the jail until, I believe, 1902. Oh, wow. That's that's news and to me. So there's, 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 a, there's an execution yard there where there was a place where people would be uh, hung. Um, is there any uh, memorial there or any type of No, there's of no record? memorial there. Oh, wow. And I think that's one of the things that I think it makes this jail uh, worthwhile uh, preserving in some form, either digitally or remotely, to remember all the events that happened there. Right. Because, I mean, you could turn into another parking lot or to another housing development with no memory of of, of those events. Yeah, and uh, I, I do want to ta- talk a little bit about the structure and design and theories from the 1800s about how you build a prison, but I just want to talk a little bit about um, the vibe you get there, right? I I both don't believe in ghosts, but do believe in ghosts. And like a good example of this uh, for me is when you go to New Orleans, you can really feel a vibe of the history of the city, which is a very, a very um, kind of tragic, kind of dark, kind of, um, uh, it was a city built on, on blood, um, but also a very jubilant city. So you kind of get these both emotions. And I'm wondering, is it similar when you have you visit you visit the site? Yes, you've walked many around. times, many times. So, what does it feel like when you're walking there? Do you is there any kind of aura that you get from the place, or do you even kind of buy into that? I don't personally. I don't believe in ghosts, but I do believe um, that places can feel as if there are ghosts there. Um, I think it's still a living place. People still live there. Uh, many homeless people do live there. So you go there and there are individual cells and sometimes homeless people will drape a cloak over the front of the cell for privacy. They might have a bucket of water there, some food there, some remnants of in their bag. They might have small things that they collect. So it is a living place and it is. Uh, there are still stories going there. So for instance, I went there a few months ago and there's birthday party balloons, balloons for someone who had an event there. And it is a living place, and I think it makes it not so much scary as um, unsettling. Yeah. And uh, have you encountered a resident there? Uh, I haven't, but my father has. And uh, does he, obviously you can't speak for your father, but um, has he described to you what it's like to meet someone who's, like, who's chosen to live, like, not chosen, but they are, they're using the jail as a place to to live. I think ironically, for some homeless people, the jail offers a degree of uh, freedom, mm-hmm. the idea that they're no longer c- c- constrained by the same rules that govern uh, like a homeless shelter. You have to be out by a certain hour of the day. You have to abide by certain rules. You have to do X, Y, and Z. So there is that slight independence. So many of the homeless people there, at least the person who my father met, he tends to live on the upper floor so as to be away from other people, so as to be away from other people who just wander in and to take photos and such. Wow. Um, and is, so I, I don't know if you know exactly, like, have they, has any um, agency or it's, I'm assuming this is owned by the state, the land, or the city it's in some owned, res- uh, to my knowledge, by the uh, city, yes. Okay. And it, is there any attempt to remove the people who have, um, who are staying there? Um, or is it just sort of a, benign negligence. I think it's more benign negligence. I think the county doesn't 
have an active interest in preserving or demolishing the structure. Uh, I think, however, if the structure did not have the landmark status that it does, it wouldn't have those same, same kind of legal protections. And so without that landmark status, it certainly would have been demolished by now. And that's one thing that's keeping it back. You have to get permissions and approval to touch it, to change it at all. Um, I think my, 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 my thinking is that the county or the city at this stage, I don't think they'd care if it disappeared. Right. And let's talk a little bit about why the building has landmark status. Obviously, it's historical. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a jail for, for a good two, um, over 200 years, I think. Um, or no, 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 about 150, 150. years. Um, but there's something more, right? There, let's, can we talk about the, why the building is so important in the history of, um, of incarceration, um, of discipline? Um, can we talk a little bit about why that building is important? Yeah, sure. So I think in, in, in the early 1800s in New York and in the 1790s in England, there was this reform movement mm-hmm. to uh, start to ask the question, what role should incarceration serve in society? Should it, be, it turns to the classic question, should incarceration be about punishment or reform? Right. One of those early movements was to, start to, build, was to build prison structures that were about reforming individuals. So one example is the idea of solitary confinement, which is very controversial. But initially, solitary confinement was introduced with the idea that you can introduce or induce penitence in an individual, hence the term penitentiary. So it is certainly, I think, a cruel place, but the step upward from the more kind of almost medieval practices that were going on in the 1780s, early 1800s in America, dark rooms with no windows, no food. So it's an architectural movement that attempts to improve a difficult, a difficult question in society, not entirely successfully, but it's it's an attempt. Yeah, this always makes me think. Uh, I was a bit of a student of this kind of stuff. Um, I studied British history, and and oftentimes what comes, you know, one of the figures that almost always comes up is Jeremy Bentham, and his invention of the Panopticon. Do you know about the Panopticon? I do. Can I you do. explain the Panopticon? Uh, the Panopticon is uh, <laughs> it's 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 this. Uh, Funny institution, it's a circular structure. In the middle of the circular structure, there's a tower with these one-way kinds of blinds and windows. And the idea of the panopticon is that one or two people in the central tower can survey all the several hundred prisoners in a single glance of the eye. And it's one of the most common forms for prisoners across the world. About 300-plus prisons around the world are built along this panoptic model of, of, of physical architecture that enables the surveillance of individuals. And this is before the use of modern surveillance cameras that allow you to do that remotely. And it's one of the most common uses of prisons. And it's also interpreted as being kind of a model for the surveillance state, right. the modern surveillance states of you know, the NSA, the FBI, these government institutions that can survey society from single points of view, from single cameras or single computers, much like an architecture. Right. And it's becoming a giant metaphor. I often, I'm a bit silly, but I often describe when I feel like I'm constantly being watched, um, you know, I, I often yeah. describe it as a panopticon. And does this connect at all to the old Essex County Jail? Is that part of that movement? Uh, the panopticon, I think for me, it's it's two things. At Eastern State, at least, it's that physical architectural form, right. but it's also the design of individual cells where you separate indivi- each prisoner to one cell so they're alone for most of the day. Uh, so uh, the old Essex County Jail doesn't follow the panoptic model in that sense, but does have those same principles of surveillance of these long corridors with the glass catwalks that allow you to see shadows at night, of the searchlights. Uh, so, yes. Wow. And um, actually, just want to go a little more into the weeds. Like, how is it designed in there? Like, what does it yeah. look like? Um, 
and in the show notes, I will attach images from from the exhibit website. But can you just like quickly? Sure. So describe? it's uh, designed around uh, four or five cell blocks. When it was first built in 1837, there was a warden's house. The warden would live on site and cater to the prisoners every day. So there was that human relationship with the prison guard. There was a single cell block. It's a rectangular area, generally three to four stories and maybe 20 or 30 cells per row. And there's a uh, so there's kind of cell blocks radiating around from a central guard tower area. There's a north wing, uh, a west wing, and a south wing. And how much of that is still preserved? Uh, the women's wing, that part is entirely demolished. The kitchen has disappeared. There was a big fire around 2003 that gutted most of the prison, but the frames are still there. All the cell blocks are still there. So it's in fair to poor condition. Do we know what caused the fire in 2003? Uh, probably, my guess is probably uh, arson or people living there who might have decided to warm themselves and had a fire spread. Wow. Um, is there anything else you want to share about the structure itself before we move on to talking about what the pro- the larger project is about? Um, no, I think that my, my hope is that this structure um, will be preserved in some way. And I think preservation is a difficult term because when I hear preservation, preservation of a, of a mansion, of a, like a big city hall, a big skyscraper, that's something that you want to preserve because it's beautiful, because it's so publicly visible. But I think the idea of preserving a jail it's, um, brings up these different questions of what are you preserving here? Yeah. And I think for me the question is, well, my argument is that this jail, we're not, we're not trying to preserve the... Uh, the, 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 the fact that incarceration is such a great thing. It's a terrible thing. But to use this as a way to reflect on the history of incarceration in America yeah. and to ask questions about what is the prison for. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because um, Newark, at least right now, is a, is a story of demolition and preservation, in ten, which I think are in, in fundamental tension with each other. They're on a spectrum. And um, we've seen a lot of examples, and I've, I'm sure you've seen them, of what uh, old spaces are turning into um, as opposed to being destroyed. Like we have examples of buildings that have been leveled and um, on the far, like on the far extreme, we can have like a complete de- demolition in the middle. Maybe what went on with science park high, where that was torn down almost completely with a, with a few exceptions. And on the other side, we have like the Haynes building, which is largely intact with it. It was gutted out, but like largely intact and the audible innovation cathedral, I think is similar. Um, what um, what is it that um, is going to go on with Essex County Jail? Or what is at least the hope? Um, One of the things that makes this such a difficult structure to preserve or relatively more difficult is that it's not uh, an empty shell. The way the Haynes Building is kind of an empty shell. You have an apartment store, you can kind of gut it. You have these large open floor plans. But the fact that it's a prison means these walls are very thick and there aren't these large open floor plates. And so whatever you, re- you, put, you put it toward, it's more difficult. What, what is a l- large floor plate? Uh, a floor plate. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I'm just... A floor plate is the, uh, it's when you have just the frame of the building, yep. and it's a large, flat, open floor plan, which allows you to put different arrangements of rooms and services inside of that. Uh, the jail is already divided up, up into all these tiny little rooms, and all those walls are structural walls, meaning you can't take them down. So if you wanted to put, like, a large office there or you wanted to put things like apartments there, it's difficult because the rooms, the cells are so tiny, and they're not designed to be comfortable. Right. And so let's talk about um, the exhibit. And one of the things you notice when you walk uh, into the Haynes building and look at all um, the wall is, A, first you see the timeline and history of the building. But then the very next thing you see um, 
are these proposals? Um, I, I, are, would you call them proposals? Or uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So can we talk? Can you talk about like what uh, the process of creating those proposals? Who are doing? Who did it? And what they um, are trying to achieve? So there were this these eleven eleven proposals stemmed from the spring twenty eighteen studio course at Columbia, where the professors, two professors, uh, Belmont Freeman and Bryony Roberts at Columbia. They spent half, the first half of the semester looking at the history of the structure and the second half looking at ways to reuse it. And these were uh, each student in the class, each of the 11 students was asked to come up with one way to reuse a structure. And the students selected a variety of different uses, such as like inst institutional use, a museum, a cultural center, a parkland, common, of, I think, to illustrate that this structure has potential and that it could be repurposed to a variety of reasons instead of just demolished. Right. Um, any particular ones that you like or have you... Are you maintaining more of a neutral one attitude? Of, uh, I think I, I, have, I have several favorites. Uh, one of the proposals to turn it into a brewery or to an extension of NJIT. Uh, one of the ones that I like, at least in not, I mean, less in terms of, of the actual contents of the design as opposed to what that design would symbolize, would be to turn it into a uh, an education and prisoner reentry center, oh. a place that provides services to uh, people who have just left prison in Newark and incarceration is still a major problem in Newark, and I would like to see this narrative associated with confinement to turn into one of freedom and to use this jail yeah. as that kind of powerful symbol. Yeah, normally I would think, uh, like, my first reaction would be to turn it into a museum, right? Because that's the best, uh, often the best way of preservation because a museum has an, often an obligation to preserve. Um, but I do like the proposals a little more inventive, like you said, as a prisoner reentry center, or uh, I don't know if any of them were like a homeless shelter, homeless residence, um, or residence for people with, um, without uh, homes. But I, I do find those often interesting. I think maybe almost ironic. I think that one of the issues that one of the tensions that makes this place more difficult to preserve is I think a lack of uh, different kinds of proposal that it can be put towards. So yeah. my father and I, along with uh, our friend Guy Sterling, we interviewed the mayor, and the mayor said initial thought is, well, this could be a museum. Um, I think that's that that might limit the focus a little bit. And so far as if we think that it has to be a museum, right. then questions become, well, is it worth preserving? How many famous prisoners were there? How many people will visit the museum? But I think that if we turn it into something that uh, is is a space that is actively reused um, and does it for for you know housing or for prisoner reentry or for a cultural center, it opens up this whole variety of uses that allows us to engage with that history is more than just preserve it. Because I think preserving it, you're preserving cells, you're preserving a cell block or just walls. And frankly, there are larger prisons that attract more people like Eastern State in Philadelphia, right. which has thousands of people per year because it's so large, because it's so uh, much more impressive. But this small little jail right here doesn't have that same uh, narrative. So I think the kinds of ways you reuse it are therefore different. Yeah, I actually want to talk about that, about museums and um, and, and uh, maybe in a broader sense of, of, of as a visitor attraction. There's, I've only ever been to one prison in my life, which is weird, and that's um, the Tower of London, which people forget was was a jail, uh, a very fancy jail. You actually got to walk around and, and they gave you food until they chopped off your head or drew and quartered you, which was even worse. Um, but... The, going going to these places is very voyeuristic. And I understand, like, there, there there's an educational aspect to going to Eastern State Penitentiary. But the ads you see, and you get ads up here on bus stops sometimes to go visit um, Eastern State, they're not about, like, contending with the history, right? Uh, what makes me think of something similar is um, going to New Orleans. Again, I bring up the city. It's an amazing city. But if you go out to the... To the um, 
to the rural areas, there's often plantations. And there's only one I know about, at least from the state of Louisiana, that's directly about confronting the history of a plantation as opposed to uh, a sort of more gone with the wind style, like, you know, exploration of what, a, you know, what, what a, you know, kind of Down Abbey, Down Abbey-esque society looked like. Um, I feel it's similar with a penitentiary. People often go to gawk, right? And One of the most popular events at Eastern State is their annual uh, Halloween right, event. Right. That, 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 that it's, 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 for me, it's a difficult kind of question because you, the institution kind of needs those events at Philadelphia yeah. to survive because that provides a major part of their operating budget. At the same time, it, it, is, it is certainly voyeurism. It is certainly using this yeah. history of pain here into something that does have physical financial value. Right, and I, 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 these are often tensions with me too, because I don't want to sanctify a space too much that we create it. We sort of metaphorically put it on a weird pedestal, right? Like it's a, it's a holy site, whatever, right? And like that often can have its own issues. But on the flip side, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to think I, of walking through and just being like, ooh, this is where they were locked up. I mean, I, personally, I don't, I don't see the Essex County Jail as that kind of a holy site. Yeah. I see it as a human site. And I think that I'm, I'd, I'd be open to a variety of different ways to reuse it, not just as a museum, um, even reuse proposals that turn it into a public park mm-hmm. or into or just use the shell of the structure and put something new inside of it. What do you think the pressures are, though, now that development seems to be pushing a little further outward from the usual spaces, right? When we, you know, military park, downtown, um, University Heights, like it, it's pushing up that way. And you can see with NGIT's construction, like that looks completely, not comp- it, it's still the same, but like it looks completely renewed in a way that didn't look like when I was 10, right? What do you think the pressures are on that space, right? When there's demand for apartments, demand for a dog park, right? Um, what, how does that affect what you can do with Essex County Jail, right? Does that limit your ability to turn it into a place for reentry for incarcerated individuals or for homes for uh, disadvantaged individuals? I think it depends on uh, the profit motive and really on who's developing it. A structure like the Haynes Building, it's such an open floor plan and it's relatively easy to use and they make a lot of money with that. But the fact that the jail is kind of a small structure and that when you preserve it, you can't build like a 10-story structure there. We can sell a 1,000 apartments mm-hmm. So it's a kind of a smaller scale structure. And I think if I'm a developer who says, oh, I want to turn this into apartments and make a money here, I, I don't think that's as, as, as realistic. So I think the hope of the structure is that it turns into maybe more institutional reuse mm-hmm. and doesn't, isn't driven by that kind of profit motive. And uh, in your opinion, and obviously you might not um, have an opinion or not want to share one about it, but do you think it fundamentally should be a public space at the end of the day or can it? You know, you can obviously preserve landmark status and still make it into a, a private space. Um, how do you feel if that were the move for a developer is to simply be like, okay, we're going to turn it into the brewery, but it, the brewery you can exclude people if, if you want to, particularly from certain spots. I think that um, I think my my main priority right now is that it is preserved, mm-hmm. um, wh- whether that becomes institutional use or private apartments. Uh, I, I don't really. It doesn't matter to me as much what it's reused for as whether or not that reuse proposal reflects on that history and uses that history as a way to have a dialogue. Mm-hmm. So I think any kind of reuse proposal that incorporates a small exhibit component or a small little history panels is, I think, is sufficient. Oh, as, so maybe like moving what you have down at the Haynes building up 
to there and like sort of at least preserving that kind of exhibit? I think there? I think in some capacity, um, even something as, like even even small small adjustments. Like sometimes you go to these European cities and you see on the pavement these little little blocks that 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 remember individuals who, who were suffered during the Holocaust. So that those kinds of physical kind of stumbling blocks where you walk down the street and you see this little block that reminds you of something that happened there. I would like, at the very least, to see something like that at the Essex County Jail as a reminder that there was something here and that people did suffer here. Do we still have those records of, of all the people who... Well, not, obviously, I'm sure there are people who passed through there without any identifying marker, um, but do we have records, at least, uh, of what went on? To my knowledge, a lot of the records are still there. Um, physically on site or at the physically, record, physically, records? Uh, some of them were physically on site. Wow. Uh, a lot of them are abandoned in the basement level. I haven't seen them personally because yeah. I was kind of too scared to go down the basement because it's so dark down there. But I did bl- and to my knowledge, when they left after 1971, they did leave many of the records there of uh, the da- prison's daily operations. So like things like the operating budgets or inmate profiles. So the listeners, you can't see my face right now. But like as a historian, I'm in like utter shock because <laughs> like, it, you know, um, records are amazing. They preserve sometimes forever what, you know, information. But they're only as good as the stuff that they're written on. And like I'm thinking of like this paper being down in some like damp basement just like disintegrating probably most of them are gone but i think yeah. if only you have five percent or ten percent i think it might be illustrative enough to give you an idea of the kinds of people who were there wow it's just, i'm sorry yeah, i just am kind of blown away to think that there's just stacks of, of people's lives literally down there um i didn't even know there was a basement until you just mentioned it right now yeah, they had the dungeons down there the dungeons oh my god um is there um what so you guys are going to have an event very soon. Can you talk a little more about what the event is meant to do? And so it's the an event on uh, September 18th from 6 to 7.30 and uh, September 25th. And it's an opportunity where we'll have this kind of roundtable discussion with a few people reflecting on uh, the role that historic preservation plays in Newark or should play in Newark. And to use this kind of exhibit as a way to reflect on different ways to interpret the word preservation. Who will be there at the, the event? Do you know? Um, or roughly what kinds of people will be there? Because I'll put a link in the show notes and in the um, in the online article. But uh, These will be historic preservationists, uh, local Newark activists. There will be two events. Uh, one of them will be focusing more on the jail itself, on individuals involved in the preservation efforts. The other one will focus on the meaning of preservation more broadly. And where will the event be located? Right in the Haynes Atrium in front of the exhibit. Oh, and so... Yep. and um, So it, it's an opportunity for people yeah. to encourage more people to come to see it and also listen to some people involved in the process, such as the Columbia professors who taught this mm-hmm. initial studio course to reflect on the experience. Uh, were you able to find uh, a former um, individual who was incarcerated there? Uh, we weren't. Uh, one of our criteria for finding that individual was that the person had to be... Uh, incarcerated there before 1971. Right, right. So ob- obviously it's it's a bit difficult to find someone. And also I think there might be a certain um, embarrassment. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, or shame with having with having been there and having having those the, those experiences broadcasted in a public format. Wow. Um, and what is your hope with the panel discussions? Like, do you do you think that'll engender more interest around? I mean, obviously you, you will, but like, what, what is your hope that maybe it'll spark something in particular? Um, I, I, I don't, I don't, probably, I don't think that'll be the main catalyst for uh, the preservation. I think my hope is, is that there is a, to my knowledge, a, a studio course at uh, NJIT this, this fall who, who's, that's looking at the history of this jail and different ways to preserve. It's kind of like a repeat of the Columbia course, 
but one that's led by NJIT. And NJIT, because it's so close, that's such mm-hmm. a neighbor there, and they own the neighboring parking lot, they do have a vested interest in uh, terminating the structure. Yeah. I think my concern, though, is that I want them, I would want NJIT to view this as a building as opposed to a piece of land that is open for development. Um, and how vocal has uh, the uh, the institution of NJIT been about acquiring it or at least trying to somehow have a hand in? I would describe them as pretty active because it's right in their backyard. It's something yeah. that is very visible to them. Uh, I do I do think that this exhibit has put more focus on the jail, more spotlight onto it. And the fact that it's not as invisible now, it does make it more difficult for an institution like NJIT to say, oh, let's just demolish it or nothing happened right. there because there is that physical documentation that says otherwise. So yeah. I think I do hope that this exhibit will put a little bit of pressure on Newark institutions to think or to rethink this, uh, their, their preconceptions about what this jail can or should be. Yeah. Are, are there any other sites? Um, and I want to broaden our scope a little bit more because we were talking about one site in particular. But what other sites do you think have also these kind of same interesting histories but also have the both face the pressures of development but also lack that um, l- lack maybe the, the the movement to do something with that site. Are there any other sites in Newark that you think about? Uh, probably a site along McCarter Highway called Watts Campbell. It's an 1840s, 1840s, 1850s uh, machine shop with all the original equipment there from really? that period. The equipment about 100, 150 years old. It's been abandoned since around 2007 when the roof caved in. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. And it's one of the few surviving industrial sites of Newark's history. Where, where is it? Uh, and you said on McCarter yeah, Highway, right? Right along McCarter Highway. Uh, as you're driving north along McCarter Highway, as you uh, pass the, uh, just as you pass the uh, bridge. Wh- uh, which, oh, you Clay mean like Street, Clay, Clay Street, Street near Bridge. the intersection of Clay Street yeah, and I'm, McCarter Highway. I'm trying to imagine this in my head right now. And like, it, it's funny, you just drive by stuff it's, all the it's time. It's another one of those sites that you don't see anything on the outside. On the outside, it's just a yeah. gray brick wall. It's pretty nondescript. On the inside, has all the original machine equipment there, all the wood roof beams. It was an active machine shop until a few years ago. Yeah, it's really, yeah, this is like the, the And weird... all the original blueprints are still inside. Oh, wow. So you've been inside? I've been inside that one, too. Wow. Um, and I imagine it's private property or is it owned by the city because of a uh, lien or something? Well, it was uh, there was a lien on it, on it because the property owner, Chad Watts, who was the fifth-generation owner of the machine shop. Mm-hmm. All, it's called Watts Campbell. He's Mr. Mr. Chad Watts. Uh, it was, he had a lien on it. It was given back to the city, and the city, unfortunately, sold it to the neighboring auto parts uh, dealer, so that might be yeah. the end of it. Wow. It, it's, it's funny because... You can live in this city, grow up in it, walk by a lot of stuff. Essex County, old Essex County Jail is a good example of this, and not know that it's some historic thing. It just looks to you so like like something, some piece of land that no one's done anything with. And it's also then interesting to see. Then all of a sudden, it pops back up, right? People start talking about it, and it's usually in the face of like development or um, change, and which is both good and bad. Has its it has its aspects, but. I, I, I'm just astounded that that, that that I think I know exactly what you're talking about and that that's actually historically important. Um, any other sites you could think about? or I think one of the things that makes Newark more difficult is that, you know, in early 1900s, very, lar- very, very large, maybe like 30, 40% of the population was engaged in manufacturing and mm-hmm. in businesses and factories. And now that's almost down to nothing. However, so little of that industrial heritage survives. Most of those factories are demolished. They're mm-hmm. gone. So I think I'm concerned that Newark has this rich industrial heritage, and there are very few places that you can go to memorize it. 
So you go to these many cities and there's always large mansions, large houses. I'm not worried mm. about those being preserved because those will be preserved. They have this very visible beauty and aesthetic. But the factory, this industrial history and this history of tenements and of jails, I think it's equally valuable, but it doesn't have that same kind of public platform. Right. You don't look at Fewer people look at a factory than look at a mansion and say, oh, that's beautiful. Right. I mean, I look at I think it's beautiful, but it's it's more unconventional. But these things change, right? Like, uh, you, normally, you, I, I buy what you're saying, at least at this point in time, that, like, people would look at, let's say, brownstones and townhouses and be like, oh, that's worth preserving. That wasn't true 50 years ago, though, right? I mean, Newark had a lot more townhouses. Um, James, Like, a lot of Newark looked like James Street. And that what those were demolished en masse, right? Yes, um, yes. And I get nervous, like, because I, I don't know what the future looks like, right? I don't know what people will esteem, right? And what will make um, a place valuable and um, attractive for people to live in. And uh, Brooklyn happened to be lucky, right? Brooklyn said, we're not going to knock these down. And now it's, you know, you go to Prospect Heights, Prospect Park, um, one of the two, I can't remember. But it's like rows and rows and rows of these townhouses and brownstones. And you come to New York, you're like, oh, we could have been that. But really, they're pretty much all located on James One and of the things Lincoln. that uh, really concerns me about Newark is that I feel there's so much more, there's a lot more capital needed to develop something in downtown Newark than there would be in other cities. Mm-hmm. That a lot, if you look at these old property maps of Newark, and there's hundreds of these small little properties. You don't need much money to buy an individual property and turn it into a home. Today, a lot of those individual buildings have been demolished and condensed into these large parking lots, two acres, three acres, that are owned by a small minority of developers. And so a lot of the future development of the city depends on these few individuals having enough capital to put something big there. So there's issues of scale here, too. Yeah, yeah. There's always that pressure, right, to build very tall. Um, Not far from the studio, there's all the the talk about they're going to knock down the old bank. Not old bank. I mean, the bank is relatively, the building itself is, I think, probably built in the 60s or something. Um, but I think they just approved the proposal for a 30, 40, I don't know. They th- so they talk about some, some very large height building. Um, but it's going to stand alone there because <laughs> there's no one else trying to build around it. So it's just going to be this like large, tall building there. Um, but that, you, that is the pressure, right? It's just to build upwards, um, to loop back to the very beginning, right? Like the M- M- MX3 is all about that, right? And your video, which I do love looking at because it really does show what it physically will look like, not just on that site, but around in the neighborhood. Um, what do you think about that pressure to build upwards? I think that once that you have a lot of these old buildings in Newark, and once they are gone, it's very unlikely that someone in the future will rebuild a building there of that scale, of that small density. Because once you, if, if, if you're a developer and you buy this two-story building for a couple million dollars, there's the intense pressure to turn that into money, to turn that into profit. Yeah. I, I always keep wondering if those are lost arts as well. Um, if it's a question of is it material? Is it labor? Like, why isn't that we're not able to build in us in those older styles? Yeah. Um, and as uh, I'm, I'm not saying that we're building lower quality buildings. I mean, there's there they do have, you know, centralized HVAC is is a is a modern invention and a very good one, <laughs> but um, and something that often uh, townhouses and brownstones and older buildings yeah. lack. But uh, what what are your thoughts on that? Like, why aren't we building in older styles? Why does everything have to be so postmodern? I think it's a good question. I think my analysis is that it relates to, I think, economic factors. Yeah. I think, to my knowledge, within the past 100 years, the cost of labor materials have switched. So 100 years ago, uh, labor is cheap and materials are expensive. And so you can buy this beautiful piece of marble, you want to treat it correctly, or you want to build a building that uses the least amount of steel. So you get mm-hmm. these beautiful forms like the Eiffel Tower, 
designed to better reflect the winds or to better stand up against them and to use the least amount of materials possible in the most elegant way possible. Today, uh, labor is so much more expensive and materials are cheap, and so you get mm -hmm. these big, giant beams, these big, thick walls. And there's not that same kind of incentive to hire a craftsman to de dutifully and detailly carve out the entire structure. So I think it really relates to the cost of labor and the availability of labor yeah. today. It's hard to find a stonemason to carve the structure. Normally, I, I actually usually buy that argument about that it's purely an economic problem, but I keep wondering if it's also an aesthetic choice and maybe these two things are two sides of the same coin. But like maybe that's the – to talk about modernism, and I think this does actually connect to Essex County Jail because it's going to affect how that gets rebuilt um, or, or, sorry, preserved. Um, but is it simply that we just like eschewed all, you know, ornateness and all um, craftsmanship for – sleekness because you know sleekness conveys a concept of modernism right and of being at the forefront um is why i have a mac i literally have a mac sitting right here like it looks sleek and beautiful as opposed to like <laughs> something with like ornate you know like etching in it and whatnot um i don't know what are your thoughts is it just do you think there's some aesthetic choice going on there and not purely an economic problem because i feel like we could train a bunch of craftsmen and that would actually literally drop the, the cost of labor if we trained so many like craftsmen to do this kind of stuff is it, is it an aesthetic choice? I think it's certainly certainly an aesthetic choice. Um, separate from economic factors, certainly right? Separate from economic factors. I think our society more than ever is industrialized, it's mechanized. And maybe it's incompatible to dress up a, a laptop with bells and whistles and detailed carving the way you would decorate a beautiful ivory box in 1900. Yeah. I don't know. This is obviously a larger discussion it's a than this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. We're not going to solve this theory. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's one of the most common and most difficult to answer questions in architecture as to what is modernism? Yeah. What is modern architecture and what motivates it? I think listeners are probably going to think I'm stupid and odd and weird you for are. this. But this I'm, yeah, and, and I am. But like that's what I, I spend a lot of my time thinking about when I walk around, particularly when I don't have a, a podcast or, or music mm -hmm. playing, is I look around at the buildings and I see these like, I, I really do recommend people walk more um bay to create more pedestrians and like help you know create um more incentive like more getting into a culture of walking to use less fuel and and, and to help the environment but also to see things yeah. you can't see things when you're driving or even for that matter running um but to stop and observe and you'll you'll start seeing a lot of intricate beauty where you are and, and i think that's true wherever you are not even just in Newark, like if you're in the South Ward, North Ward, or downtown, but anywhere in the world. Um, and sometimes I keep wondering, maybe that's why we're not as fo focused on aesthetic. Like there's never a debate when I go to a city hall meeting about a new structure, about whether or not the building looks good. And obviously we're, the city hall, like the planning board is very restricted in what they can say about that stuff. But I often go and I see these postmodern designs and I'm like, is that going to look good 50 years from now? In a way that a Mies van der Rohe building, like the pavilion, still kind of looks actually really cool, right? Um, I, and I also do have a soft spot for um, mid-century modern uh, buildings, so that may be just me. Um, but I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about, like, how do we think about those issues? One like, of the things I love about these old buildings is how they're not perfect. How you might you might look at an old table and each of the chairs, are, the chair legs are carved differently because they're carved by different craftsmen, different little lengths and variations. Or I go to my house and there's the banisters on the stairs. And each one is a little bit different. You know, the mm -hmm. width is different, the radius is different because they're all individually carved. Whereas I go to house today and all the banisters are identical, just these identical square rectangles from floor to ceiling or walk around downtown Newark. Mm -hmm. And I like how with these old buildings, there's this variation in detail to the stone because they're all individually carved. That I think you kind of lose with this glass skyscraper, all the windows are 
identical four by six feet, one after another, after another. Yeah, I, it, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, what started happening, particularly in the late 90s and early 2000s, is um, I didn't realize there was a term for this, but if you live in Newark and you're wondering what's the term for all these like kind of multifamily residences that were built with the garage on the bottom and the weird stairs going up, they're actually called Bayonne Boxes. <laughs> I learned this name. <laughs> not Newark so, Boxes. Yeah, not Newark Boxes, but for some reason they're called Bayonne Boxes. And um, it was a very popular thing to do was level a house and uh, just build these things up. And I grew up in North Newark where... The houses were similarly sized. They were almost all single family, um, but they varied from each one to each one. And what was cool, some of them had Tiffany glass in them. My house actually I grew up in has two Tiffany panels in them. Um, and you just don't get that kind of variation, with the exception of maybe symmetrical like switching of the stairs, um, with these Bayonne boxes, right? And I always get nervous um, that we're losing the sense of like creating individual individuality in houses. I think sometimes these Bayon boxes they try to be historical. You know, they put like a little little front onto it, or they'll have little variations on the ornament. Yeah. But it looks kind of superficial because the central thing behind it is just a box, and then yeah. you change the door, change the windows, change the little details, change the color of it. But it doesn't have. It's it's not. It's difficult to replicate that natural development. You go down a new, normal New York Street, an older New York Street, and things kind of grow naturally, one thing after another, over 50, 60 years. Where the street of Bayon boxes are all identical. Yeah, it, it, it's it's hard. It's hard. It, you can't you can't recreate history. Yeah. It's lost and it's lost forever. God, that's. I think we found the podcast title for this episode. <laughs> you can't recreate history. <laughs> um, so to circle back and to to um, fl- uh, flesh out the end of this episode. So is there anything else about the old uh, old Essex County Jail or about um, development in Newark that you're thinking about or want to share? Um. No, not not at the moment. Okay, yeah. I, I think I think r- right now one one thing that I'm concerned about is, uh, of course, the lead water crisis, but also gentrification. Yeah, or revitalization for some. Revitalization. <laughs> um, just it, like quickly, like what your thoughts on that? Uh, I think gentrification is it's a difficult word because I don't entirely yet know what it means. For me, it means okay. There's a supermarket downtown. There's all these new residents downtown. The park looks nice. So, I mean, I like those other things. There's also, of course, the other issue of displacement. I think displacement is something that's very difficult to track. You know, how many people are actually displaced by this? I have talked to developers in downtown New York, and their argument is that, well, we're building new buildings, and so we aren't pushing out any old people because, you know, the rents we charge in these new buildings are for new tenants. Um, I mean, I don't entirely buy that argument. So in terms of gentrification of how it will affect downtown New York, I don't yet know how it does. I don't even, I, I, I don't have an opinion yet. Well, it's it's nuanced. Yeah. It's nuanced. That thank you. That's actually I think a nice way to end um, this topic. Um, so I want to end our episode with how we end every episode. And what are you excited about in Newark? What am I excited about? Um, I think I'm ex. I, I, hmm. I think there are many things to be excited about. I'm excited about the possible extension of the new path light rail to Newark Airport. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's definitely necessary for the city. Hope that inspires more development. Um, I'm hoping that. Wait, 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 just a quick question: yes. South Street or no South Street stop? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, because there's often a debate about like extending it and also making a stop on. You know, do you know where South Street is? Yes. Yeah. So there used to be a stop there. Whether or not to reactivate that stop is a I, I, very I, I, interesting I don't, discussion. I don't, think, I don't think it should be reactivated. Okay. Um, my 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 impression is that um, there's not enough. I don't think there's enough people in the area to justify that that kind of expenditure. But my hope is that when they do extend the path train down there, that they will make accommodation. Because when you extend a train line, you can and you can kind of design it such, such that in the future we're able to put a new platform there, a new station there, mm-hmm. but you don't. 
So my hope is that they extend it there, but they design the tracks in such a way that in the future they can plug in a platform without having to relocate the tracks. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, that's a whole podcast episode in itself. Because um, yeah. I, I actually lived on South Street very briefly; it was for a few months. But um, it, it always made me think of like how much that area would change if there was a stop there, and also Lincoln Park because it's a lot closer to Lincoln Park than yeah. you would think. Um, so for me, uh, oftentimes when I come to this part of the episode, I usually try to focus on something that's going on in Newark rather than with myself personally. But um, I figured I'd come out and use this opportunity to talk about a development in my own life. And I just um, started a job at audible.com, uh, um, which is here in Newark. And it's um, a large tech company, the largest audiobook seller in the world. Um, and I'm really excited for that because they're um, a fascinating company here located in the nerve center of Newark. And um, because of that, um, I, um, I'm going to make the sort of um, journalistic choice to, out of fairness, both to you as listeners and to Audible, um, to not talk about, or at least um, for this show, whenever um, Amazon, uh, which is the parent company of Audible, or Audible itself comes up to cede editorial control to um, an independent host. And I think it's just out of fairness to everyone involved. Um, but I'm, you know, I'm super excited. It's uh, a really, um, a really cool company, um, and it also means I've changed uh, career paths. At least I'm no no longer a practicing lawyer, which is um, both really interesting and weird. But uh, I think it's actually a really good development. And it's not that I hated the law. It's just like I think uh, out of a choice, I really wanted to be invested in Newark. And being a part of Audible actually really does mean being invested in this town. Um, so. Uh, that's it for this episode. I want to thank our guest, uh, Miles Zhang. Uh, this thank is you. Manny Antunes, host and producer of the Pod and Market podcast. Editing, uh, editing and sound engineering by Ba Fraze. Podcast logo and design provided by Robert Conti. Quick shout out to Robert, who just got married last weekend. Additional creative input by Samantha Cateis. Pod intro and outro music by Dan Myler. If you have a subject you would like to dis- hear discussed on the podcast, please email podandmarket at gmail.com or contact the pod through social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And so I'm going to end up with a quote from uh, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, a novel by Ocean Vuong. And um, I'm not going to talk too much about the book, but it was suggested by a lot of people, most notably uh, Gia Tolentino, who just wrote a, an amazing set of essays called Trick Mirror. And um, rather than explaining the book, I just want to tell you, read it. And I'm going to read one quick paragraph from it. The time in New York City, a week after Cousin Fuang died in the car wreck, I stepped onto the Uptown 2 train and saw his face, clear and round as the doors opened, looking right at me, alive. I gasped, but knew better, that it was only a man who resembled him. Still, it upended me to see what I thought I'd never see again, the features so exact, heavy jaw, open brow. His name lunged to the force of my mouth before I caught it. Above ground, I sat on a hydrant and called you. Ma, I saw him, I breathed. Ma, I swear I saw him. I know it's stupid, but I saw Fuang on the train. I was having a panic attack. And you knew it. For a while, you said nothing, then started to hum the melody to Happy Birthday. It was not my birthday, but it was the only song you knew in English. And you kept going. And I listened. The phone pressed so hard to my ear that hours later, a pink rectangle was still imprinted on my cheek. Thank you. (laughs) 